I've put two months of work, like five days a week so far, four or five days a week. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes as you said, I stayed like all night long just because I want to finish it. It, ha it has to be done. We need, it needs to be comfortable because uh, they're going to start building the pipeline and wanting to build the pipeline. Uh, and so the more I put work into this, the less I want it to be destroyed, uh, the more I feel attached to it. But regardless of this treehouse, this cause is so important, we have to fight it, and it's our responsibility. In a narrow band of forest tucked between a highway and a railway stands a massive 99-year-old cottonwood tree. And if you look way up, about eight stories up off the ground, you can see one of the highest treehouses in the world. Protesters built this treehouse here on Coast Salish territory in British Columbia, Canada, because this tree is in the direct construction path of an oil pipeline, the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. And as long as there are people here occupying this tree, they can't cut it down and they can't build that pipeline. This is a podcast about action. It's about what people can do, and in fact, what people around the world are already doing to halt climate change and to protect our future on this planet. And since this is episode one, I want to tell you about the treehouse that this podcast is named after. I'm Curtis Bowdy, and this is episode one of the Cottonwood Treehouse, recorded on the land of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nations. If you want to stop an oil pipeline, building a treehouse might not seem like an obvious first step, and that's because it's not. This is just one current method of resistance at one location after many years of environmental protests, legal battles, and political action against this pipeline. So today, I want to talk a bit about how we got here, up a tree. The story starts back in 1953, when the original Trans Mountain Pipeline was built. It was logical that a pipeline be run to the great seaport city of Vancouver from the newly developed oil fields of Alberta. In December 1950, executives and engineers of several of the major oil companies and of the Bechtel organization began studying the routes that could be followed between Edmonton and Vancouver. Both by airplane and train, they crossed and recrossed the Rockies, traversing the main passes. That's from an old-school documentary called Across the Rockies, filmed in a different age. If you want to see it or find any of the sources from this episode, it's all in the show notes on our website, cottonwoodtreehouse.com. And while you're there, you can also check out a video I made about the treehouse that we'll be talking about in this episode. Okay, let's fast forward all the way to 2012, when the company that owned the pipeline, the company Kinder Morgan, they announced that they wanted to triple the existing pipeline's capacity. So they proposed to lay down a second pipe all the way from Edmonton to the coast, largely in order to sell oil to markets in Asia. Even from the beginning, there was a lot of opposition. But before I dive into how that's evolved over the years, I want to take a quick look at why a growing number of Canadians oppose the pipeline and a shrinking minority of Canadians support it. Firstly, half of this pipeline passes through unceded Sequetmik territory. For those of you unfamiliar with the term, unceded means that Indigenous people never ceded or legally signed away their lands to the Crown or to Canada. It's their land. Uh, and the company utterly failed to consult First Nations about building a pipeline on their land. 
Secondly, people were and still are really worried about the risk of a pipeline spill in their backyards and neighborhood ecosystems. There's been so much development since the 1950s that much of the original pipeline is now in urban areas. The project cuts through public parks and snakes past hundreds of thousands of people's homes. And frankly, the company has a pretty abysmal track record. Trans Mountain has reported 84 separate oil spills in the last 60 years. So the threat of a spill is much less a worry about if it would happen and much more about when it would happen and how it would affect our ecosystems and our water supplies and how this toxic substance would directly impact human health. And people have every right to be concerned about that. Now, if this pipeline is completed and oil flows to the coast, then there will be a sevenfold increase in tanker traffic in the Salish Sea, where Metro Vancouver is built around. And people worry about the legitimate risk of catastrophic tanker accidents and spills and what that might do to our aquatic ecosystems and to species at risk like the sockeye salmon, which are a major part of the cultural identity of the province. Now, even if the pipeline operates without incident and there aren't tanker accidents, it will allow for the tar sands to increase fossil fuel production to the point where it will add the same amount of annual carbon emissions as does the entire country of Belgium. It's like adding a Belgium to the planet in terms of emissions. And this is at a time when what we actually need to do is to be drastically reducing our emissions if we want to have any hope at halting climate change. And one more thing. As time passes, it becomes more and more clear that there is simply no way that this pipeline is ever going to pay for itself. The economic argument for oil is certainly not what it was in 2012 when this pipeline was first proposed. Back then it was expected that the pipeline would cost about $5.4 billion to build, but now the total price tag is up to $16 billion. And that rise is happening at the same time as the value of oil is dropping each year. Crude oil is worth almost one-third of what it was in 2012 when the pipeline was first proposed. The price of oil actually dropped below zero dollars a barrel in 2020, uh, which is a bad thing for oil. And economists from the nonpartisan group the Parkland Institute recently published a study demonstrating that the projected demand for diluted bitumen in Asia is actually not realistic, even if you set aside the decreased demand caused by the pandemic. In fact, they estimate that Alberta heavy oil producers could lose four to six dollars on every barrel of oil that they sell. So yeah, we want this pipeline stopped. Before I even start talking about climate action on this podcast, I want to acknowledge that living in concert with the land and water and taking action to protect the environment, that's what First Nations and other Indigenous people have been doing here on this continent for thousands of years, and people like myself have a lot to learn from them, and a lot to do in joining this fight with them. That said, here is a brief review of the fight against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Since its inception, this pipeline has been a very political issue. And back in 2018, the shareholders of Trans Mountain felt that the future of the pipeline was too uncertain, and they voted unanimously to sell it. Much to nearly everyone's surprise, the Canadian government, led at the time and currently by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of the Liberal Party, 
they bought the pipeline for $4.5 billion. They kind of hinted that they would be able to resell it to someone in the future, that that was their plan, but to whom has never been even remotely clear. Now, British Columbians, we don't want the pipeline, and we've got the least to gain and the biggest risks. So in 2017, the province elected new leadership, BC's new Democratic Party, and we elected them partly on their promise to oppose the expansion of this pipeline. Though unfortunately, the province has had limited options because of the constitution and because of what is federal and what is provincial. When questions were raised about our jurisdiction and our ability to manage uh, substances coming in and out of British Columbia, we did what I believe was the reasonable thing. We asked the federal government to join with us and refer the matter to the Supreme Court of Canada. At that time, the federal government declined and we went to the Court of Appeal here. Although we were unsuccessful in our appeal, we have made application to go directly to the Supreme Court, and I believe that's what British Columbians would want us to do. That's John Horgan, the Premier for the province of British Columbia, speaking at a press conference in 2019. This is not just about this project, it's about protecting provincial jurisdiction and ensuring that the government of British Columbia can do everything in its power to protect those things that are so important to British Columbians. Many politicians, especially those in the New Democratic Party and in the Green Party of Canada, have spent a lot of time opposing this pipeline and are really trying their best. There have also been dozens of legal battles waged against Kinder Morgan and now against the Canadian government. For example, there's been cases from First Nations against how they failed to do proper consultations and proper environmental assessments, and cases from the provincial government arguing that they should have the jurisdiction over the pipeline. In 2017, eco-justice lawyers won a case against the pipeline, and to quote their website, the court found that the government's approval of the project was void because it did not comply with Canadian law, including the responsibility to protect endangered southern resident killer whales, and the government had failed to properly consult with Indigenous peoples. This has since gone through a second round of consultations. Keep in mind that the investments had already been made and much of the work had already been done at this point, so those consultations were, in the words of lawyer Kyla Lee, lip service. And so this raises the question, was the second judicial review really something that was actually taking into account the viewpoints of the Indigenous groups who were affected by it? Or instead, was it just an exercise in performing all of the necessary steps to reach the desired conclusion, which is of course not consultation and accommodation, but is instead giving lip service to the duty without actually performing it. And after a second round of legal disputes, the Federal Court of Appeals dismissed it in February of 2020. Now I want to take a moment just to step back from all of these facts and say that the lack of justice here is really frustrating to me. We have federally appointed justices refusing to hear cases against a federally owned pipeline. And more than a few people, including members of parliament, have implied that there is an obvious conflict of interest there. At the same time as all of these legal and political battles have been happening, there's been protests. 
The RCMP arrested more than a dozen protesters today in B.C. They've been camped out on Burnaby Mountain since September, trying to block expansion plans for Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline. Another 16 protesters were taken into custody, more than 50 arrested this week. Back in 2014, more than 100 people were arrested in the Metro Vancouver area for blocking crews from conducting drilling or survey work related to the pipeline expansion. These were peaceful protests. People occupied the path of the pipeline by putting bike locks around their necks and locking themselves to objects in the way. Even Elizabeth May, who at the time was the leader of the Green Party of Canada, went out in protest and decided to get arrested. So she's being led away by two Mounties. This for defying a court order uh, not to impede or block access to the Kinder Morgan facility. I believe very strongly that the permits that were issued to What's Kinder step, Morgan guys? did not represent a proper process. They did not respect the rights of interveners. They did not respect the rights of indigenous peoples on this territory. and. The, the, the commitment to build a pipeline in 2018 when we're in climate crisis is a crime against future generations and I will not be part of it. In 2017, a group called the Tiny House Warriors started building 10 tiny houses and started placing them along the route to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline from crossing their unceded Sequetnik territory. Half of the pipeline cuts through their land. Each of these tiny houses not only helps to stop the pipeline, but it also provides housing for Sequetnik families facing a housing crisis due to deliberate colonial impoverishment. They've built six of the 10 of these houses so far. And if you wanna help them build more, you can donate at tinyhousewarriors.com to help them build the remaining four tiny houses. In 2018, a dozen activists from Protect the Inlet and Greenpeace protested Trans Mountain by dangling themselves off of the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. While they were up there, they were blocking oil tanker traffic from transiting through the Burrard Inlet. I spoke with activist Will George about that this summer. My name is William George from Slaywatooth Nation. And um, uh, my ancestral name is uh, Swayson. And uh, I received that name about five years ago. And that means when I speak, people will listen. It's, it's incredible to, um, to be a part of this movement. And um, you know, I've been working hard on this and so is my nation. You know, and it, it, I'll make a disclaimer that uh, I don't speak or represent my nation as a whole. I'm just a member that um, has been appointed by his elders and you know asked to do this work. And um, it's taken me this far. I'll break it down for you and I'll tell you the story. Um, you know, uh, it was, um, you know, years ago, it was always my hopes and dreams to hang off one of those bridges there and to, uh, you know, create those messages and the awareness of the, the, the sheer threat that is coming of the 700 increase of tanker traffic you know it took a lot of again i'll share with you months and in, in, in training for a lot of folks like-minded folks we deployed about 2 30 in the morning and we went underneath the bridge and a group of 12 of us uh, we made our way we climbed the uh, surface ladders and uh, we put ourselves in position for that day you know it took us about five hours to put ourselves in position and uh, we all deployed we had these banners for the visuals right we had the visuals and all this art and the flags were waving and stuff and it was uh like I, i've cleaned windows and high rises for about 20 years now and uh i'm used to hanging off uh 
you know, in heights, and it, that was very comfortable for me to be up there. They hung there for a full 35 hours before they were hauled away and arrested by police. In addition to protests against the pipeline and against the government for the pipeline, there's also been protests against the insurance companies that are insuring the pipeline. And that's because there's a lot of risk involved in this pipeline, and if it can't get insurance, then they cannot build it. In June of 2020, activists planned to protest at the Zurich Insurance headquarters in Vancouver. But just a couple days before the protest, the company decided not to renew cover for the Canadian government for the pipeline, which was fantastic news. But instead, we protested at one of the few remaining insurance companies, a company called Chubb Insurance. And it seems likely, at least to me, that as this pipeline is delayed further and further, that more of these few remaining insurance companies will back out. So after eight years of politics and legal battles and protests, the pipeline construction window opened in a tiny little forest along the Brunette River on August 3rd of 2020. And on that day, Dr. Tim Takaro, a professor of public health at Simon Fraser University, climbed 20 meters up into the tree canopy and began camping on a ledge tied to two trees in the path of the pipeline. Good morning. A uh, little bit damp here up in the treetops in Burnaby, but it's a beautiful morning. Um, my stream down there uh, now has uh, white water, and uh, that was very soothing last night. That's Tim Takaro talking from up in the tree canopy in a video he uploaded to YouTube. Bottom line is, in 2020, we have the knowledge that building new fossil fuel infrastructure will damage the planet. And we have to act on that knowledge. So let's get our act together and stop this pipeline and all future large fossil infrastructure. Supported by a wonderful group of people on the ground, he occupied that ledge in a tent called a porta ledge. He occupied it non-stop for 11 days, which is remarkable because it is a tiny cramped space way up off the ground. After 11 days, Tim came back down to the ground and I went up in his place and I stayed for the next seven consecutive days. After me, there was a series of other tree sitters, including BCIT instructor and urban ecologist, Dr. Christine Turing, and Maureen Curran, a teacher in Metro Vancouver who had this to say while she was up in the Portalage. I love this space, even with all the noise, there's so much beauty here. It's so much worth saving. We all need to act together. We all can find the solutions we need. We know that we do not need this pipeline. It's too dirty, it's too dangerous, and it's too expensive. And there are so many better ways that we could spend our money and our time and our energy. Let's work together, let's make this happen. Stop Tumex. August and September came and went, and the initial construction window for the pipeline in that area passed. Considering that the pipeline company never gave a reason for why they chose not to build there at that time, we believe it was probably a strategic retreat. 
Every time there has been protesters arrested in the path of this pipeline, it has generated a lot of bad press for Trans Mountain. And pulling people out of these trees would be quite a media spectacle. Maybe they thought that we'd go away by the winter, but they only gave us more time to get comfortable. You, yeah, you're really high. Like, and most people don't understand how 25 meters, how high it is until you're up here. And you're like, whoa. There's like, there's no place for mistake here. Like, That's Timothy Gover, the person who came up with the idea to build this treehouse and is easily the person who spent the most time up here building it. Yeah, so we started building this treehouse like two months ago. Uh, I told Tim, Tim Takaro, hey, what, what, why don't we have a treehouse up, up here? And he was like, yeah, maybe, why not? And uh, I said, I can build this in 24 hours. Like, <laughs> uh, it was, I said, I could build a platform. And, and it, took, it took literally a month to build what I thought would take 24 hours. Um, but when I saw it was taking more time, I was just, I was like, no, we got to do this. This is important. And I love doing tree houses. So I was like, no, I told, I was, I, I told him I was going to build a platform and it's going to take more than 24 hours. Uh, and, but we're going to finish it. And to give you a sense of just how high up this is, here is Amanda Hayner who's also been building this since day one. And here she's explaining the process of how they got up there in the first place. So this tree that we're building the treehouse in is like really, really tall. Like, like yeah, definitely if you're picturing a tall tree, it's like a little bit taller than that. Um, and it's completely branch free until, yeah, 20, 20 meters or something was really, really high. Um, so there's no way to get into the tree without shooting something up there so tim had built this like pneumatic cannon which was basically like two pvc pipes with a valve like an open closed valve in the middle um and one of those pipes is open-ended and the other one is sealed off with a with a bicycle um like a p bicycle pump valve um and he was like, oh, yeah, just like come over to my garage. I've built this cannon. We need to test it out. And it was like truly quite terrifying because I think I, I find like high pressure objects like quite intimidating. Um, right. So, yeah, the, the point of the cannon is to shoot a thin, thin light string um, over the first branch. And then um, that passes over and then we tie that string to a thicker rope which you then can pull like that's going to be the climbing a climbing rope um this is called a, a tagline <laughs> and yet they still needed to build a smaller platform up a nearby tree in order to get just enough height to be able to fire a line into the branches of the cottonwood yeah yeah and the platform that we built in that tree would to anyone seem like quite a high tree platform already like you'd be like oh that's a high tree house and you'd be like no no this is just the the front step to try to get into the real the real tree i am at the base of the cottonwood that uh this whole story is about and i'm gonna climb up it it's a bit of a process i've got to attach um well first i gotta get it get myself into a harness then i've got to attach this thing called an ascender Okay, so I attach this Grigri to myself. Um, I do it this way. Every time I go up, no matter how many times I've been up here, it's a little scary. You're looking up and you're like, oh, I'm halfway there. And then you look down 
And you're like, oh God, I'm halfway there. <laughs> it's terrifying because it's a long fall. It's not a survivable fall, I think. Let's not think about that. Let's just keep climbing. Let's just keep swimming. Oh man. They're supposed to come and clear cut the forest here to put the pipeline in the ground. And we're gonna try to prevent this as much as we can. And so far it's been quite successful. That's Timothy Gobert again. And I love building tree houses. This is my passion. This is my third tree house. And I, will, I want to build more. Um, and so the idea is to make it more comfortable to remain here and to be inaccessible to the police that will come because they will come at some point to take us out of here because they want to build the pipeline. But the more we're going to make it difficult for them to be in here uh, and to cut the trees, then the more we're going to delay the process of the pipeline. So the more we delay the pipeline, the more like the investors and the government will be like, no, there's too much money involved. We can't do this project anymore. So the idea is to cancel the project. The goal of this treehouse is to cancel Trans Mountain Pipeline. And this is not a small goal. But eventually we got into the winter. And so then we said like, hey, we, it would be nice to have like roof, like to be protected and walls uh, to get inside, you know, like, uh, but this is very technical because everything has to come up here at 25 meters off the ground. Uh, and we don't have like a crane to bring up stuff here. Um, all we have is our creativity and our mischievousness and try to figure it out like uh, with very, very little budget. Um, so just to bring stuff up, bring ourselves up. And every time like you have to climb with the ascenders, like it takes a lot of energy. You can ask everyone who climbed here. Like it's uh, when you get here, you're just like, oh, made it. Uh, and in the first place, it was it was super hard. Uh, my friend Amanda has been here the whole time, like just helping, setting up the stuff, and even like getting in the tree the first time. That was really hard. This treehouse was built without harming the tree in any way, and that's not a small thing. Uh, so we want to have a non-intrusive way with the with the tree, so we don't want to have holes into the tree because that's one way of building a treehouse, but there are different ways um, using just rope lashing. So we have ropes and the main beams, which hug the tree like this. Uh, they are lashed with, uh, with some pretty simple rope, but there's a lot, of, a lot of lashings. And I've done this before, so I feel pretty confident about this system. I, ha I have another treehouse that's been standing for three years now, and it's the, it's the same exact system. It feels appropriate that if you want to build a treehouse to save the tree, that is how you would build it. And there's also something that feels really right about using a treehouse to fight for climate action. Here's Amanda again. But it just feels like the kind of creative feat um, in the face of something that's so destructive. And it feels like creation and specifically this kind of like challenging and ridiculous, like kind of inherently goofy and playful creation is like the perfect antidote for like, this totally unplayful destruction that's coming in and it's just like yeah I don't know it feels like turning and meeting something with this like big warm smile and you're like nope we're gonna like keep playing we're gonna keep creating um you can't just like bulldoze that kind of spirit like um and that to me is romantic I don't mean like I'm like lo like love romance. I mean like capital R romantic. It's like human idealism or something. The facts are there and you can keep having those conversations about like 
how terrible climate change is, which are like important and true. Um, but then I think people get a little bit stuck on the like, okay, well, but so like what then, you know, like what can we, what can we do? And like, if it feels so terrible all the time, like that sucks, you know? And it's like, no, there are things you can do that are, um, like joyful, you know? Okay. So a very recent and big update just the day before I was planning to release this first episode, the pipeline workers and the arborists and the police showed up to camp. So here are my immediate thoughts on that. Yesterday, uh, we were there until midnight and we were going to be back at 10 a.m. And at that point, we were going to occupy it full time from then on. Um, we had just finished bringing all of the uh, rest of the food and um, camping supplies up there and everything was, was ready and we had climbers set. And uh, at four in the morning, the RCMP, the police uh, and the construction workers showed up to camp and no one was there. And uh, so we didn't have a climber in the tree. They showed up a day before we thought that they were able to go in there. Um, so it was a big surprise to us. Um, Yeah, um, they spent today putting barbed wire fences up um, around the cottonwood tree that the treehouse is in. And uh, they spent yesterday clearing out the camp and removing the portal edge. So I'm disappointed, obviously, that we're not in the treehouse now. Um, that's a huge disappointment. But I'm also happy that, that it's there. It's still going to be very hard for them to remove it. Um, an arborist came yesterday to camp and tried to climb up the tree to the house and he only made it about a quarter of the way before he decided to come back down and, uh, and he didn't come back today. So <laughs> I'm hopeful that it will take them a while to figure out how to get up there and to figure out how to take apart that building that's huge and full of glass and only lashed onto the tree and... Um, it's going to be very hard to do safely, so they're going to have to take their time. And every day that we delay them is a success for us, because every day we delay this pipeline, that is good for the climate. And every day we delay the pipeline, it becomes more and more likely that they won't finish it. I'm also hopeful because we've been blocking those trees for four and a half months, and that is a massive delay. And even if it stops tomorrow will have been successful for four and a half months. That's four and a half months that that pipeline was not completed, that, would have, that it was not built. And that is, that's amazing. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of everyone for that. Just last week, the National Energy Board of Canada announced, they, they put out a report saying that this pipeline wouldn't make any sense unless we didn't take climate change any more seriously. And they know that we need to do that. Um, so that's awesome. It's changing. The tide is, is the tide is turning and I feel hopeful in that. And I've named this podcast after this structure because I think it's a powerful symbol of the sorts of resistance we need in the fight for climate action. This podcast is also a way to make sure that if a tree falls in this forest, someone out there will hear it. 
The reason that all of this history and context is important is because if you think of it as solely one treehouse in the path of a multi-billion dollar pipeline owned by the Canadian government, then the outcome seems obvious, and it seems like there's no way that these protesters can win. But the fact is that this treehouse does not stand alone. All of these different groups working in concert, that is what is going to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And in a very real sense, these groups have already succeeded. The pipeline was supposed to be completed in 2019, and now it's the end of 2020, and they are nowhere near done. The pipeline is now so far behind schedule that the current completion date is for 2022, and that date keeps getting pushed further and further back. I can say that I feel pretty optimistic that this pipeline will never be completed, in large part because of all of these groups working to stop it. And that's because as the pipeline gets more and more delayed, the economic arguments for building it make less and less sense, and the public opposition for it is rising. I think it's just a matter of time before we stop it. Well, and a matter of how much money will sink into it in the process. Climate change is the biggest threat we've ever faced as a species, and it's barely on the news. So obviously we need more media coverage of it. But as someone who has read a lot of heartbreaking headlines about melting ice, devastating wildfires, and deadly flooding, I know that we also need a new narrative around climate, one in which earth-destroying greed is not an inevitability of human nature, but one that shows how, in times of great adversity, people are managing to come together to create change and to be better. So without underplaying the seriousness of this crisis, we're going to try to focus on stories of action and messages of hope and regeneration. I'll be talking with environmental activists, climate journalists, and green politicians, and people from all walks of life that have started upon courageous journeys in order to keep our planet more than simply habitable. Make sure to subscribe to the Cottonwood Treehouse on Stitcher or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and and if you want more people to hear this podcast, then leaving a rating or a review or just sharing it with your friends and family, that would go a long way and I would really appreciate it. So thank you for that and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.